Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Religion. I'm Philip Michael Sherman, a host of the channel. We're joined today by Josh Guthman, author of Strangers Below, Primitive Baptists in American Culture. Before the Bible Belt fastened itself across the South, competing factions of evangelicals fought over their faith's future, and a contrarian sect, self-named the Primitive Baptists, made its stand. Joshua Guthman here tells the story of how a band of anti-missionary and anti-revivalistic Baptists defended Calvinism. America's oldest Protestant creed, from what they feared were the unbridled forces of evangelical greed and power. In their harrowing confessions of faith, and in the quavering uncertainty of their singing, Guthman finds the emotional catalyst of the primitive's early 19th century movement, a searing experience of doubt that motivated believers rather than paralyzed them. But primitives' old orthodoxies proved startlingly flexible. After the Civil War, African-American primitives elevated a renewed Calvinism coursing with freedom's energies. Tracing the faith into the 20th century, Guthman demonstrates a primitive Baptist spirit unmoored from its original theological underpinnings, seeped into the music of renowned Southern artists such as Roscoe Holcomb and, and Ralph Stanley, whose high, lonesome sound appealed to popular audiences searching for meaning in the drift of post-war American life. In an account that weaves together religious, emotional, and musical histories, Strangers Below demonstrates the unlikely but enduring influence of primitive Baptists on American religious and cultural life. Welcome to New Books and Religions, uh, New Books and Religion, Joshua Good. Hi. Welcome. Hi, Philip. Thanks for having me. Hi. Well, we have a tradition here in which we ask people to tell us, before we get into uh, the, the books themselves, to tell us something about their own background and how they became interested in their field of study. And so I would say, how did you how did you come to be interested in American religious history? And particularly, how did you find the Primitive Baptist? Okay, so I think for the story, the main story for me in some uh, begins with music and, and finding my way into the book, the research subject, the research question was a kind of accident, really. Finding my way into American religious history is not so much of an accident, but but um, what happened was I had gone to graduate school because I was fascinated by the American South, especially um, the music of the American South, black and white. Um, it is something that I, I just started listening to when I was in high school. I grew up in Los Angeles, um, and I remember listening to um, – Robert Johnson records, um, and then a friend um, it give, gave me a Bill Monroe record, like an LP in high school, um, and said, you should listen to that. And um, I put that on, and I I thought it was wild. I'd never heard anything um like that. It was so fast and the thing was so high pitch. I didn't even I did not know what to do with myself. I th- I thought it was crazy. Um, but I loved it. Um, and I was fascinated by, so I was fascinated by Southern music 
And um, I thought that's what I would study when I went to um, graduate school. And I started off doing that and I wrote about um, what was called hillbilly music among southern textile mill workers in the 1920s. Um, And so that was the plan. And what was happening was um, in graduate school, I was working in these archives. They have archive. I went to UNC Chapel Hill. There's an archive there called the Southern Folklife Collection. And I was working there in the summer the way you do in graduate school so I could pay my rent. Um, the work wasn't terribly exciting. There was so much that was uncatalogued in that collection. It's an amazing collection, but there was just so much that was uncatalogued. We needed to catalog it. So that's what I was doing. Um, that can be really stultifying work. But the big perk was that you could listen to anything that you wanted in the collection. And they had 15,000 LPs thousands upon thousands of 78 RPM records. They had open reel fields recordings, you name it. Um, and for somebody like me, it was just, uh, it was a treasure trove. And so I put on something to listen to and do my data entry basically. Um, and one day I, uh, there was a tape, a cassette. It was a, a listening cassette had, um, People they made from I think of a field a field recording, um, and it said Primitive Baptist on the spine, and I didn't know what that I didn't know who that was, what group that was. It sounded intriguing to me simply because of that term primitive, that problematic term. So I thought, okay, we'll put that in. I press play, and um, I mean, I just had one of those experiences. Um, it just the music just struck me dead. I, I, I don't know what to tell you. I just never had heard anything like it before. Um, it really just stopped. It just stopped me. It's long, slow, loud hymnal singing, minor keys, modal keys. Everybody sings lead. They're not conventional harmonies, but the voices will kind of go in and out of phase with one, with one another. It just sounds like big, great crashing waves of sound. The texts were sung so slowly that I could not understand the text. It just was a kind of smears of sound. Um, and they sounded, it sounded to me like people calling up spirits or um, it sounded ethereal. It sounded funereal. It was luminous. Um, it sounded like things that I had heard um Growing up in synagogue, I'm Jewish, so I like the way that the cantor would have these twisting lines, because one thing that happens in primitive Baptist singing, which I would soon learn, is that um, there are notes, but then there are all these what musicologists will call grace notes, you know, just a lot of quavers and slides that people are adding onto each syllable. So I it just wasn't it was unex, it was unexpected. And I was. um I was so moved and so fascinated by it the way that you might, I don't know, with that may that other people would get fascinated by a piece of music or maybe a piece of art or something like that. It, this one just hit me. For me, I just wanted to know uh, where the singing style came from. Who were these people? Where did they come from? What does the singing mean to them? Um, these are kind of just like they – they came as kind of quick questions for me, um, just questions of curiosity and interest. And then the more I found out 
about the the primitives, um, the more fascinated I became by them. And eventually, you know, it gets to this point where I thought, gosh, maybe there's a a, a good research project here. Um, and so it, it started in this sort of vernacular singing of these southern religious people or these in this case, this was an, actually these, this, this was an Appalachian church. So Appalachian religious people. Um, so there's a connection to my original interests and in sort of southern, you know, American roots music. Um, but the becoming now a historian of religion and all that is mm, in some ways I just stumbled into it. You know, I feel weird about it. It just happened. Um, I'm so happy it did, but that that's sort of the beginning of the the book right there. Yeah, I think it's it's always interesting to hear these sort of serendipitous uh, events that lead people on to further scholarship in whole areas of, of – Yeah, it's never really as planned as you might think, is it? It's just – Right, right. Well, for, for those people who don't know, just a simple answer. Who are the primitive Baptists? Where do we place them in American religious history? Yeah, there's such a problem. <laughs> um, so there are these people that emerge, um, it, but they coalesce by the late 1820s. But they're, they're, they're sort of bands of people like them. Um, in the 18 teens, what happens is a group of Baptists, or I shouldn't say even a group, groups of Baptists in different parts of the country become really, really concerned with the growth of their denomination, but mostly with the growth of extra church organizations associated with their denomination, um, especially missionary operations, but also theological schools. Sunday schools, Bible tract distribution societies. And a lot of this seems, I know can seem, especially if I talk to believers here and now, you know, it's just like, what's the problem? What's the, what is the, why? Who cares? Um, What, I guess for for them, and one thing I just try to recapture is how new um, these sort of extra church, extra denomination organizations were. And for a lot of Baptists, they seem way too new. They grew way too fast. There was way too much money involved. And the power centers of all of them were located outside the local church. And um, people became worried and concerned and felt it was um, that their church was being taken over, corrupted, stolen. I mean, these are heavy charged words. I'm just using words they they would have used. At the same time, there are just innovations in theology and religious practice that are happening too with Baptists, but also with other evangelicals. And so um, revivals, uh, protracted religious revivals um, became a thing. Um, And this practice also disturbed a certain number of Baptists and there tended to be where there was an overlap between between people who were disturbed by, by sort of the practice and techniques of revival and with the growth of missionary operations, along with people who were 
bothered by his sort of theological innovations that tended to say to the to the individual sinner, hey, um, you have some role in your own salvation. Um, it's not just up to God. People who objected to all these things wound up, you know, we can see from from our vantage point, coalescing into a movement. Um, and they wound up calling themselves Primitive Baptists. Um, the name didn't really hit until, um, oh, the 1830s or so. Sometimes they called themselves old school Baptists. Sometimes in some places they called themselves particular Baptists. They always, always insisted, no, we're the real Baptist church. You know, you, you people are new school Baptists, or they would simply describe their opponents as missionary Baptists, and they they hated the term missionary. So um, that was just a kind of slur against them. Um, but that's that's sort of where they came from. And that that Philip, you know, that's this other thing. When I started finding out about them, listening to the music, and I and I and um, find their origin in the late teens, eighteen twenties, eighteen thirties, and this thing for someone who was mm, relatively new, let's say, into studying antebellum religious history, you know, knew some of the broad contours, but didn't know a lot of the details. A group of Baptists who were anti-missionary was so weird to me. Just this, that's, it's just startling. Um, I didn't know, I, I just did not know what to do with myself. And I thought, this is incredible. How is this? How is this? Like, how is this possible? Where did these people go? Oh, and they were angry at people who were in support of missions. It just, it opened up a new, for me, it was just brand new. Okay. So yeah, this is, this is really weird to think about in our current context, Baptists who are sort of opposed to this missionary impulse. And so uh, scholars of antebellum religion have really kind of offered a couple different theories as to sort of explain how and why primitive Baptists emerged that would not necessarily um, simply take the sources at their word, mm-hmm. so to speak. Yeah. So how how have scholars explained the emergence of this very distinctive form of Baptist identity at this point in the nation's yeah. history? I, you know, one model sort of says, okay. These let's look at these people. These are largely poor folks living on the margins of society. Um, maybe often they're, they seem to be in the back in the back country, the rural south, the Appalachians. Um, and what's happening is they're angry and frustrated and fearful of the incursion of a kind of Christianity um that seems um to descend from the northeast um or descends or is being propagated by more formally educated folk um by people who are comfortable with um the emergence of a modern mar- capitalist marketplace and these people uh they would say these people who became primitive baptists are poor subsistence farmers Okay, and so the movement becomes a kind of um, it's a kind of it's a kind of social revolt with a sort of religious veneer. I don't I maybe I don't mean that entirely pejoratively, but that that's that's the kind of model that's um, 
that people have in one one model that people have used to explain um, the growth of the primitive Baptist movement at that time. Um, other people have said, you know, um, it's not that's not quite right. And like you're, that that model, that socioeconomic model is not taking these people's religious beliefs seriously enough. And what you have to understand is that these were Calvinists. These were people who believed in predestination and that the theological changes that were sweeping um, Baptist churches along with other evangelical churches at the time were radical to a lot of people, um, far too radical. And that what it seemed like, it seemed like that um, a new style of Protestantism, a new style of Christianity that um, – put a lot of power in the individual sinner to affect his or her own salvation and put a lot of power in ministers and in the drama, the emotional drama of uh, re- revival, um, that this seemed threatening and alien to Calvinists. It seemed as if people were mistaking emotionality for God's grace, it seemed as if people were interested in the theater of religion rather than the thing itself. Uh, and it seemed especially that people were usurping God's power, that ministers and lay people said, we've we can do this. We can bring in bringing more and more people to Christ. But that sounds great. But that. Um, to people who would become primitives, that sounded uh, as if people were saying that they were the ones affecting the, the conversions and not God himself. And so this other school is really, really wants to emphasize this other school of interpretation about the primitives just re- wants to emphasize um, their Calvinism and that this is a this is a Calvinist movement in reaction to um a more Arminianized, a more liberalized theology that's sweeping Baptist churches at the time? One one of the things I like about your work is you say very clearly early on that this is not uh, a history of the primitive Baptist movement. You say this is sort of an idiosyncratic approach, but I think it pays off that you do sort of case studies. And one of those case studies, the first one, the subject of your second chapter, you actually, uh, it seems to me, try to find your way between... Uh, do we do we take sort of social context seriously or theological commitment seriously? Yeah. And you say, well, both and also there is this third thing yeah. we need to pay attention to, which is something you call normative emotional style. Yeah, uh, which was a new term for me <laughs> uh, as someone who thinks about history. Yeah. To think about the history of emotional style. Yeah. What what does this methodology give you yeah. in terms of thinking about the origins of the primitive Baptists or their their endurance as a as a group? What does it mean to say that they were dissenters from this emerging normative emotional style? Yeah, I think like so for me, you know, those two schools of interpretation I mapped out, they're not. I just learned so much from historians who are sort of in both camps, you know. Um, I learned so much from them and I learned how to think about the primitives and how to how, how to think about uh, antebellum evangelicalism. Um, what what felt. It just felt to me that 
I had that. It's that thing that happens with historians. You read the sources and you feel like, okay, these sources are saying certain things to me that I don't quite find in the existing historiography. And these people, I, I could see certain ways that they fit the kind of Calvinist um, model. I could see the way that they, in some ways, they used language that made them seem like they were just poor, sturdy, plain folk. And they were, they just hated those New England rats that were descending down upon them. I could see that. But then there were just other things in the sources that seem to be speaking to some different concerns. And especially in, in their, um, published um, published accounts of their conversions they were so dramatic um the period of conviction where they're sort of people are struggling with their own sin and god is god is sort of making them making themselves aware of their own sin this period was so elongated um and so fraught um with primitive baptists that stuck in my mind. And also the fact that many of these people in the, especially in that first generation would describe going to camp meetings and trying to be saved and it not working. So they would try to, they basically do everything correct. Correctly. They'd pray. They'd sing. They'd gather with their friends and family. They'd, do all that stuff and they couldn't, they just didn't feel right. It didn't, it didn't, it, it felt, and the way they describe it, they, they felt sort of, um, almost broken in a way. But what happened is there was a, there's like, like a couple ways you can go if you can sort of put yourself in, in their shoes. And one is something's wrong with me. Everybody here is getting saved, but I don't feel the spirit, so I am really damned. There's that. There's also the, I'm doing everything that I'm supposed to do. Uh, nothing's happening with me. Um, what's going on with those people? Are they exaggerating? Might they be, if not faking it, maybe they're, I don't know. I don't really trust these people. Um, and that dynamic was showing up in um, the sources. I was just so fascinated by that, um, by this travail. And, the, and then what was happening is primitives would sense, you know, they might sense a hope of grace, might sense God's presence, and then it would go away. And they'd sense it again and it'd go away. Um, and it didn't happen once or twice. It just was a constant thing. It happened before conviction, during conviction, it happened after conversion. It's a dominant experience in their lives. Um, and so all of that just drew me into the, I guess you would say the emotional drama of, of, of their lives. And I wanted to, I wanted to account for that. And what, what, what happened was it's, oh, it just seemed to me that those emotional experiences were, of course, they were informed by wherever they were socioeconomically and the, you know, um, geographically, they were informed by theology, but they weren't, 
entirely defined by those things. And that's that's what I'm trying to do in parts of the book is trying to use their emotional experience um, or to see how these other factors, the factors that other historians had rightly considered, like theology and socioeconomic class, like how those things got filtered and reworked through their emotional experiences. Um, and that that's what I'm trying. That's what I'm trying to do there. Um, and I hope I succeed. I, you know, and, 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 and it is, it is synthetic. It tries to be synthetic. And that's, it's what I, it's, it's, that approach is to me, it's like, it's on the one hand, it's what I see. It's what I, it's what I see happening, the sources, and it makes sense historiographically to me. It's also, I know with me, it's sort of dispositional. Um, I think like, I I just want it to, you know, it's like what I said before, I thought I learned so much from these two different historiographic camps. I'm like, can we just all speak together here, please? I don't know. Something like, I don't know. Maybe I think there's something like that happening with me, too. No, I found it. I just found it fascinating to think about these uh, individuals in those those terms and those categories. And you're right. All of these do sort of work work together and if, and, I, and I think it's it's part of uh, the nature of the disposition of academics to want to sort of set up warring camps so that we can debate each other's approach to these things and sort of pull them together was uh, a very interesting uh, way to move forward in in the next chapter though you then turn and start really talking specifically about how changing economic situations mm-hmm. in in the antebellum period mm-hmm as well as shifting dynamics of gender and how gender is perceived. Mm-hmm. Um, those two concepts as being really useful for also thinking about the primitive Baptists as sort of not only emotional dissenters or theological dissenters, but dissenters in these other categories of social change or, or economic change. And I wonder, you, you might say a little bit about how, how you saw that manifest itself in the story. Yeah, okay, so I became... I'm really interested in their emotional lives, you might say, right? I'm, and, um, there's a, there's a whole body of literature and history and then in, in, in other fields like anthropology and psychology dealing with emotion. And I just, I was fascinated with that stuff. So I tried to use that to help me understand them. Um, that feelings have a history. Oh my gosh. Okay. Um, but I'm, I, there were, I wanted to, I just, I kept, wanted to get closer and closer in that way. You know that historians want to get closer and closer to subjects, at least some, some of them. Okay. Um, and sometimes you get so close to them, you just, you need to, you need a break. But, um, uh, so that chapter, if I've got my chapter numbers correct, yes, I think I do. Um, where I take two, two of them, two primitives, and kind of look at them really, really closely. Um, I just wanted to write kind of portraits in a way, but they wanted, I wanted them to be analytical. Um, and I wanted to try to convey something of the complexity of these people's lives. Um, and I wanted to, use these people as case studies to suggest that a focus on individual lives on the 
texture of the individual experience is really, really useful. It's a useful corrective to some of the other historiographic approaches because um, you you see the way that believers are in some ways it's not their, this is my word but processing their religion or processing their culture or processing their place in the class structure and they're feeding these things through um, just their life experience their emotional experience but also all the sort of received idioms of how to be a Baptist, let's say, and they come up with something new and improvised. And so for, for, in one of the cases is this man named, uh, CB Hassel, um, you know, he's a merchant and he's a church elder and, um, He's a serious defender of the primitives. Um, he becomes a historian of, of the movement. Um, and you, you, the gap between sort of his official pronouncements and what's happening in his life, that always, that was, that, that gap, that gap between sort of official culture, theology and lived experience is always fascinating to me. And there's that going on with him. Um, and, and, I try to use him as an example of how primitives would use the language of, let's say, the the marketplace, the capitalist marketplace, or even the, the rhetoric of poverty, but they may not really be poor themselves. Um, and so I, you know, I just, that was important for me to note. Um, and I suppose it's a, it's on the one, it's like a historiographic intervention, as you might say, but it, but it, 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 it's also, I just, I hope a kind of, um, a kind of approach to the, the historical subject that I think is valuable. Um, um, it's not quite micro historical, but it's close. And, um, I like that approach, I suppose. Um, and then the other case, the other case in that chapter is this guy named Joshua Lawrence. And that's where I deal with gender and sort of his, his sort of imaginings of himself as a kind of mother um, and um, and how that sort of comports with his patriarchy at the same time. Um, in, in all these cases, I'm just trying, I just see people, um, how would he put it? Like um, working through, the culture or their theology that they're surrounded by, they're not fully entirely shaped by these things, by, by theology or by culture or something like that. They're not flat subjects. I don't want, I just don't think they're flat. I don't think it's enough to say sort of the culture made them do it or patriarchy made them do it or Calvinism made them do it or subsist there's subsistence farming made them do it you know in terms of an explanation it's not enough for me so that's what i'm was trying to do in that chapter yeah i like the fact that you talk about culture sort of as a resource for giving them language here to to think through these these issues i thought that was a uh, a nice uh, way of phrasing it and and got around some of this reduction yeah yeah that, yeah that sometimes people will be charged with in these these ways uh, i want to talk about your next chapter because I I grew up in East Tennessee. Mm -hmm. I have family members who are primitive Baptists. Mm -hmm. 
And I don't think it had ever occurred to me that there were African-American right. primitive Baptists. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so you, you sort of move into a, uh, you know, after the Civil War and the rise of African-American primitive Baptists and these really remarkable institutions that they built. Can you tell us a little bit about who these people were, where they came yeah. from, and what made their primitive Baptist both uh, primitive Baptist as as well as different from other African-American forms of uh, Protestant? Yeah. Thank you they're, for this period. So they're fascinating. And the, the thing is, you know what? One of the things is I think um, primitives, like in the – I don't know. I feel like they're not – obviously they're not very well known, but to the extent that people sort of have an idea – People who you are not very familiar with them have an idea of who they are. They associate them in some ways like with the old mountain church. And that church is just coated white, you know? Um, and so it's like, what? Black primitives? But then, of course, when you think about it, well, yeah, of course there were because primitive Baptists um, were numerous in pockets of the South. And those were um, churches were Blacks and whites worshipped together, obviously segregated, but they were in the same building. Um, and so what happens in primitive Baptist congregations, like uh, in congregations across the South after the Civil War, is that um, blacks start building their own churches uh, once they're freed. Um, there is a rather extended period of like a kind of twilight where – um, certain African, you know, certain numbers of African Americans stay in the the churches where they were and are there. There's their interracial congregations post emancipation, in some places really longer than you would ever think for decades. Um, but um, in the case of Black primitives, there a, a movement forms, um, and what happens with them is they have. There is that kind of uh, Calvinist theological orthodoxy you see in their in their writings, but they're they have the kind of organizational dynamism that we associate with other aspects of the black church in those decades after the Civil War. Um, And in the case of. the people I look at, they're they're centered in Huntsville, Alabama, and then there's another sort of like center in Florida, sort of like along along the coast of, of Florida. And um, they build in Huntsville, like I focus on the growth of a, of an educational movement um, among them, um, and from that educational movement grows a convention movement, like just a sort of a, a a big denominational organization. Um, and so what, what I, what you see there is just, um, it's that it's the combination with black primitives of a kind of theological orthodoxy in these years with, um, organizational flexibility and dynamism that you do not see with white primitive Baptists. Um, and what happens is you can tell a story about black Calvinism, that people don't really know about or don't didn't think is really possible because there's a a lot of the historical work on Calvinism had suggested that 
Calvinism was just not anything that the enslaved were interested in at all, that doctrines of predestination, things like that, were just doctrines of the status quo. Um, and so the idea that um, Calvinism in some way might be appealing to African-Americans, enslaved or free, was... Um, I don't know. It's just not that's not hadn't really been operative in the literature. And it, it just there the existence of these African-American primitive Baptists sort of tells just it just tells a different story. That That's all it is. It just tells a different story. Well, I thought it was just absolutely fascinating. Um, and then your your final chapter. Yeah. Uh, I feel like we should we should make some uh, music recommendations here for the oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. but sort of come full circle sort of back yeah. to how you say you got sort of interested yeah. in this movement. You, yeah. you look at the careers of these two uh, musicians, one probably a little more well-known yeah. than the other, Dr. Ralph Stanley uh, and Roscoe Holcomb. And, and really interesting, you talk about sort of the, the continuation of a sound or an experience of the world completely separated now from any sort of theological system or denominational structure, but that has its place in the larger American history of um, music and the kind of experiences that music evokes in people. Mm -hmm. And so maybe just to say a little bit about who these folks were and how you think it is that this, this strand continues, even despite the fact that primitive Baptists today are, um, well, maybe that's the next question. Well, yeah, where they, they, the they're, they're, they're not as numerous, and certainly uh, this this sound far outstrips the number of individuals who might have it in, instinctively in their own religious tradition. Yeah, they. they so uh, let's see. The two people are um, one Roscoe Holcomb, who um, was raised in an old regular Baptist church. The old regulars are very, very close cousins of the primitives. I, um, he also he also um, he eventually became a member of a holiness church, um, but he's steeped in the old regular tradition, which, again, is a real close cousin to the primitive Baptist tradition. Um, the other person is more famous, um, and that's Ralph Stanley, who recently passed away. Um, he's a a blue a bluegrass legend, um, probably second in importance only to Bill Monroe, the founder of the genre. Um, and Ralph Stanley had his kind of, um, you know, Holcomb, the first guy became popular in folk revival circles in the 1960s. So a, that's a kind of popularity. Stanley um, had been popular in, in bluegrass circles um, for decades. And then he had this sudden stunning moment of, national stardom um, in the wake of 9-11 when a song that he had recorded um, called Oh Death appeared on the soundtrack to the movie Oh Brother Where Art Thou and the movie did okay at the box office but the soundtrack was one of these like crazy um, runaway bestsellers and was stunning because it was just American roots music um, and Stanley's version of this, this old song, Oh death. Um, I mean, it won him a Grammy. He performed it on national TV as I think I write in the book, right? I, I mean, I heard it on country radio. I could not 
believe myself. I just was stunned um, because it's a, it's an acapella deathbed plea. It's not about pickup trucks and it doesn't have a good beat. <laughs> OK, and I love my modern country music, but th- this was this just was otherworldly. Um and people were fascinated by that that sound and his sound and his voice. And they kept describing it as haunting um, and chilling. And it was. It was. But I I wanted to know why people were so moved by Ralph Stanley's sound and why in a in a in a sort of similar instance, um, but less well known, why people had been moved by Holcomb's sound, his voice, too, and why I personally was captivated by the same kind of sound because the sounds that they, that Stanley and Holcomb were making were versions of that music that I heard way back at the beginning of everything. The music that just struck me dead. Um, so I, I just, it's a kind of question of what, what's the power, what's the power there? Where does that singing style come from? What does the singing style say to people? Um, and what happens is, you know, I, that singing style is rooted in primitive Baptist folkways, but then it, it gets disseminated to this larger audience that really has no idea at all <laughs> about any of the intricacies of primitive Baptist history or Calvinist theology, but they sense something. And um, just in an academic way, I was always interested about like what happens to a theology as it sort of not just changes over time, but um, almost decomposes or mutates or rots out and then changes into something new. Where does it go? Um, and this was a story about Calvinism. Where did Calvinism go? Um, it became, for me in this chapter, it becomes Calvinism became a sound, a feeling um that was that was um became popular like after 9/11 in moments of national crisis even though and it spoke to people even though you know these people people are not hearing um John Calvin they're not hearing puritan divines you know they they hear like but they hear something ancient to them, they hear something mystical, they hear something um, spectral, um, they hear something existential in it. Yeah, I love this phrase, Calvinism is a sound. <laughs> uh, I, th- I, I just love, I love that. Uh, so maybe then, if, if that's one path that this tradition takes, uh, whether we think of it as uh, sort of marginalized or even decomposing, right? Uh, there are still <clears throat> primitive Baptists. Yeah. Who are they now? Where are they now? And how do they see themselves in relationship to this longer historical tradition? They're, they're not many, but there have never really been that many. Um, in the 1830s and 40s, there are just places in the South and along the Western frontier, Appalachian frontier, where in regions, primitive Baptists were sort of num- really numerically significant and, you know, might you'd say like held a kind of cultural or religious sway. Um, parts of Tennessee where um, 
other evangelicals were just absolutely panicked that uh, there are just too many primitive Baptists and such. But but they were never, you know, by the, certainly by the 1850s, they're just, you might say, well, they've lost. And so as other branches of the Baptist denomination just grow and grow and grow, primitive numbers remain relatively static over the 19th and into the early 20th century, 100,000, you know, maybe. Nowadays, there's probably... 60 to 70,000 of them, um, the last count that I saw. So not many, um, at all. They're located mostly, um, in the South and in Appalachia, but you can find a primitive Baptist church here and there in places where you just wouldn't expect it, you know, Los Angeles, California or Oregon or something like that. Um, but that's, that's rare. Um, and they are demographically speaking, I don't have the data right at hand right now, but they're, they're just older. They're just older. Um, and then in just in my own personal experience, um, this is so, this is totally anecdotal, but I just, it just feels to me that the congregations, not only are they smaller than if you just walked into your average, well, take any number of the many different forms of Baptist churches have got around here, but just the congregations are smaller and they just, they're older. It's not that you don't see young people or you don't see families and such, but um, it's, you know, it's not, it's not a kind of tradition. It doesn't missionize. So it's not going to recruit people heavily. Um, and, you know, theologically, it just doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't quite speak to our moment in the way that other evangelical or, or just evangelical churches do. Um, so, um, but they're there, they're, they're not dead, uh, not dead at all. Um, and they carry on those traditions, although they're not at all I mean, they're just not at all fixed in time. I should I should say that. I mean, it's not it is not as if if you go to a primitive Baptist church, it is not like you're count, encountering like ghosts from like 1830 or anything like that. It's just it's just right. Reg- well, you know, I mean, I don't know. It's just regular folks. Right. Um, yeah. And I've always found it really interesting. I I have been to primitive Baptist churches and I grew up around a lot of missionary Baptist churches and uh just from those experiences did not get the sense that the people I was with knew that there was even this history of a debate present underlying why this church exists and that church exists. And uh, the argument, it seems to me, and once again, this is totally uh, anecdotal, manifested itself in arguments about whether one could retain or lose one's salvation. Mm -hmm. And the more Calvinist would uh, take one argument and the the more missionary inflected uh, argument would be no you can't uh, in essence and so I I heard the kind of uh, distinction that you're making about the origins but manifesting in a contemporary huh. along a different theological oh that's debate. fascinating the, and so you would hear the same question was underlined uh-huh, but you would hear mis- who's in charge of salvation and you would hear missionary sort of missionary Baptist saying that you could essentially lose your salvation or you couldn't. 
that you couldn't that you uh, you could oh, wow. because that was uh-huh. given by uh-huh. God. Whereas I would I actually had heard some primitive Baptists say, no, of course oh, you that's... can because God could decide to oh. completely change God's. Oh, that's fascinating. And, and, and you know, so this is, once again, this is all no, anecdotal, no. I, but... I mean, I believe it absolutely, and it's that's an what you're saying there is different from like official what official sort of theology would be, which is that. Once saved, right. you're always saved, Calvinistically speaking. But of course, as we know, and this is why we study this stuff, I mean, people do different things than what their official theologies say they ought to, you know, and they have different. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, thank you for talking uh, with, with us today with new books. Uh, I wanted to say for uh, the end here that this, once again, is uh, Strangers Below, Primitive Baptists and American Culture. This is uh, Josh Guthman uh, at Berea College. And uh, thanks once again. Thank you so much, Philip.